as the services kind of uh, roll by, it gets uh, the introductions get more embellished. Uh, he asked me last night. He goes, "How should I introduce you?" And I'm going, "I just tell him I'm a good guy. Uh, that's that's fine." And and I said, basically, he goes, "Well, Colby." And I said, "Well, that's probably the most important thing." Well. For this group, the most important thing for me is the seven kids and 16 grandkids. So, And to think the 15 grandkids are just from my first three kids. Oh, we're going for 30. Uh, uh, my wife's here, so I just upped the ante to 30, so we need to start uh, sharing that vision with our children. Especially the last three that aren't married yet. we got to get them a... Movement here. Any uh, any options here or possibilities? Uh, see me afterwards. I'll be here. Uh, you know, normally when you come to a church, you you begin to pray and consider what God might be communicating. I talked with Colby a couple of weeks ago just to get uh, some understanding and idea of what this church was all about and some of the demographics and. But you know, it's you get. Some general things, but I, I must say I have thoroughly enjoyed being here. This is the third service now, and um, uh, it has been my joy and pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, I would say there. But, you know, you kind of work these things out, and then God blows it out of the water. And he did that last night when we were going through the walkthrough uh, for the first service. And Isaiah 26, 8 came up came up on the screen. And all of a sudden, this flood of memories and emotions just overwhelmed me. And it was like God was saying, okay, change your message, boy. So I did, but I must confess, I did it safely. And then this first service this morning, I did a totally different message because I, I just don't like to be redundant, even though you weren't there. Uh, it's just, it's, it's difficult for me because I'm afraid of going to rope memory and I'm not really trusting in him. I'm just trusting in what I did before. So I never want to fall into that trap. And then as I was praying between these two services, uh, God began to challenge me to get a little more intimate, but I'm looking around the room. How do you get intimate in a room and be a little more honest with what Isaiah 26.8 really meant. And how does it relate to the theme of missions? So that's what I'm going to try to do. To remind you what that verse was, and I'm going to quote it in New American Standard. Oh, and by the way, about halfway through my message, I'm going to be quoting stuff and you won't have time to even turn. But about halfway through my message, we're going to camp on a passage of Scripture and so if you don't have Bibles, if you'll raise your hand, there are folks that can bring you a Bible if you'd like to follow along in that Bible. So just go ahead and raise your hand. They'll be looking for you and get the Bible to you. So here's what, the way I memorize it from New American Standard. While following the ways of thy judgment, O Lord, we have waited eagerly for thee. Thy name, even the memory of your name, is the desire of our hearts, our souls. You know, when, I, when you think about that, you know, I can understand the whole idea of, of, of this, his name being a motivation and a passion of someone's life. But they're going much deeper when they say even the memory of that. 
Every time your name comes to my remembrance, every time the different names that articulate your attributes and characteristics, I am captured by that. And, and it was one of those at least cognitive, intellectual things that I was able to connect. And I thought, man, that's cool. That's really cool. And, and then I, whenever I find a verse, I want to find complementary verses that relate to that. And God took me to Psalm 63. And it starts out in a very passionate plea where David says, My God, thou art my God, I earnestly seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have beheld thee in thy sanctuary to see thy glory and strength. Because thy loving kindness is greater than life, my lips will praise thee. Those are the first three verses. When you come to verse 8, you have the simple expression, my soul clings to thee. Now, I just went into explanation of that last night. I didn't get personal. Let me get personal. This was in the early 90s when God was opening my eyes to this concept of a passionate pursuit of knowing Him intimately. I'd been a Christian since 1971 as a freshman at the University of Tennessee when I made my commitment to Christ during the height of what was known as the Jesus Movement. Unfortunately, much of the emphasis of the Jesus movement wasn't so much about making much of God, but making much of what God could do for me. And in doing so, it made more of myself than it did really of Him. But what God was doing in the 90s was wake, awakening me to how much I'm, I was really making much of myself instead of much of Him. And when I started reading and studying Psalm 63, I still remember this moment vividly. While I'm reading, O God, thou art my God, I earnestly seek thee. I started memorizing that. I memorized the first eight verses because it's talking about this passion and pursuit of knowing Him. And I'm, as I'm memorizing this, I am living in the comfort of, I am that man, God. I can authentically say, I passionately seek after you. And one morning I was reflecting on that portion of Scripture, and here's what happened. God interrupted. And it's literally almost like I heard the audible voice in the sense of my spirit and God saying, is that true within your life? And I had an immediate answer. Yes, Lord, that is me. I know it's me because I'm traveling around the United States and people are amazed at my love for you. And he said, would you mind if I check that out? Would you mind if I surface what's really there? And I literally believe, if my recollection, but I could be embellishing like Ron does his introductions. I think my response was, be gentle. It was ugly. Because what I thought was a passion for him was more of a passion of all the great things I had done for him. Which meant I was an idolater. And so, when that verse came up, all that memory, and then when Louie and I began to pray about calling college students to a passionate pursuit of knowing God, 
That verse was a given. Oh, fallen in the ways of thy judgment, O Lord, we have waited eagerly the, uh, you know, your name and the remembrance of your name is the desire of our soul. We knew we wanted to call college students to one passion and one passion only. That was to know Him intimately. Because that is the foundation of the Christian life. That is the foundation of everything we do. Our being here this morning should be the collection of people who have been passionately pursuing Him throughout the week, who want to come together to encourage each other in that pursuit. And what that pursuit looks like, an honest engagement in their community and to the ends of the earth. So you might be now even more asking yourself the question, what in the world does this have to do with the mission of God? I mean, tonight we're going to be talking about the different things that this church has chosen to be involved in locally and to the ends of the earth. Jeff, get to something about missions. Well, I already have. Because the traditional way the church normally tries to get people motivated to do something for God is to be focused on the needs of men, men and women. So our normal process to try to get you engaged in some kind of ministry, whether it's local, international, is to tell you what the needs are. You know, to tell you the needs that exist within uh, this county. You know, I've heard 20,000 foster children. I mean, that's horrific. And the church should be the number one champion for children because when God reigns, there's hope for the orphan. I mean, that's just an understanding of Scripture. And so I could, I could leverage that and talk about the need. I could talk about the, you know, you know the need of, this, of Prescott and, and this surrounding uh, county and, and area more than I will ever dream of. And so we can talk about that need. And we almost use the need to leverage you to do something. Don't you care and won't you help? Or we'll do a global thing. I could talk about the 1.8 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus before in their entire lives. So if they've never heard His name, how can they be saved? Not going to happen. Or the 6,000 plus unreached people groups in the world today. And we define an unreached people group where there's not critical mass enough in the indigenous church to be able to accomplish the mission of God on their own. And so they need the churches around the world to assist and to help. And I could, I could play on that and go, don't you care? But see, that is a human motivation for a divine ministry. Now, we need to know the information. But the information should never be used to force you to do something. The information is used to give you information to make wise decisions as it relates to your gifting, your blessings... Everything within your life is God is going to direct you in His mission. So you might be asking, then, Jeff, what's the primary motivation? We're going to do it this way. I'm going to give you two words to a verse, and you're going to complete the entire verse for me. I see skeptics in the room. I'm going to give you the first two words, and out loud, not... Because I do not have the gift of interpreting your tongues. First two words, and out loud, unison, everybody together, kids, women and children, everybody. 
You got it? Are you ready? Okay, I am not convinced at all. There are too many people. That are, are you ready? Okay. I mean, that's probably the way you cheer for the Cardinals, right? Or, or New England, I'm sorry, down here in front. Right, yeah. So here we go. Be still. <laughs> See, almost the entire room got the first part. But notice, listen to the first part. Be still and know that I am God. We think that's it. Because our natural tendency in the Western church is to think it's about what God has given to me and I rejoice in that, I embrace that, and this is cool, and I live happily ever after with Him. Not connecting and engaging in His heart. But then, after he says, be still and know that I am God, he exposes his heart. I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in all the earth. Let me kind of unpack that for a moment. First of all, we should be staggered by the invitation to know him. I mean, just think about it. This is the God who breathed forth stars, spoke things into being. Transcendent holy, the furthest star, God is just as close to that as He is to me because He envelops it all. Not bound by some body. And that transcendent, holy, righteous star breather, what is it, 10 to the 32nd power now in the numbers? That's a boatload of numbers. I can't count them all. That God says, I want you to know me intimately. Because the Hebrew word is yada. It's the same Hebrew word that is used in Genesis 4.25. Adam knew, yada, Eve, and begot Seth. That is speaking about physical intimacy resulting in a child. When God uses it, it is the invitation of spiritual intimacy that He has invited His children into. It should stagger us. Every time we contemplate, think about that, that God truly wants us to know Him intimately, which also should communicate that you can't do it on your own. It's only as He reveals Himself to you that you can even know Him. So the entire pursuit of knowing Him is motivated, not just motivated by God, it is empowered by God for us to even have that ability. I mean, we hear it through the Old Testament, we hear it in the New Testament. I mean, Jeremiah said it beautifully in Jeremiah 23 and 24. Those of you that are wise, don't boast in your wisdom. Those of you that are mighty, don't boast in your might. And those of you who are rich, don't boast in your riches. In other words, God is saying, stop boasting in my gifts as though you did something. But if you're going to boast, boast in this, that you know, yada, and understand me. So a boast is, do we know the giver? Not just theologically, cognitively, of all the different things. You know, we can list the attributes of God from A to Z. That doesn't reveal knowledge because biblical knowledge is relational. Talking about to where we are getting to know Him intimately. That's why Hosea says in Hosea 6.3, I mean 6.6, God desires loyalty more than sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So he's telling the Jewish people, I'm more interested in you knowing me than your ceremonies for me. Wow. But what does it have to do with the mission of God? It's beautifully articulated as one person finished the verse. Psalm 4610. 
Be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. And I will be exalted in all the earth. Here's what I think God is saying to all of us. I want you to know me. But as you pursue the knowledge of me through my word, not through some magical mystery tour of your thoughts and minds and perspective, but you only discover intimacy with God through the intimacy of His Word because that's the revelation of His mind as He communicates who He is to us. Okay, we've got to get that out here. Because back in the 70s, Jesus movement time, we talked a lot about God and rarely opened our Bibles. And so it was more of a magical mystery tour of discovering who God was instead of seeing Him in His Word as He exposes Himself to us. He says, be still and know that I am God. But then He's saying, but I don't want you to miss my heart, my mission, my purpose. Of all things, I want you to understand, I am calling you into relationship because of my mission, because of my purpose. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. See, Isaiah, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to any graven images. This God who has revealed Himself to the nations is being robbed of His glory in Prescott, Arizona to the ends of the earth. Right? Okay, maybe not. He's being robbed of that glory. He's being robbed in the glory throughout our country. He's being robbed of the glory among the Berbers of, of North Africa, among the Aceh of Indonesia, among the Wei of China, among the um, Banjar of China, among the Kurds of northern Iraq, eastern Turkey, because they don't know Him. Many have never heard His name. And He's telling us, I want My people to know Me, and in knowing Me, I will infuse in you my heart, my passion, my desire for the nations to come know me. Now, please understand, when I talk about nations, I am not ignoring the United States or Prescott, Arizona. It's not, we do local, we do foreign. They're two separate things. There's this false dichotomy that we continue to kind of live in. No, it's God's purpose among the nations, both locally to the ends of the earth simultaneously. Don't develop these dichotomies that allow you to choose one over the other. We don't have that right or that privilege according to Scripture. We are involved in both. We raise our children in both. We raise ourselves in the Christian church in the understanding of both and in that dynamics. All right? You with me? All right. Thank you. You're talking. Good. So, how in the world does Isaiah 42.8 relate to this? What Isaiah 42.8 communicates to us is a life that is passionately pursuing God that results in the catalyst, in the motivation of our engagement. If you find yourself totally disinterested in serving in the name of Christ in community to the ends of the earth, you think, it, well, I guess I'm not called. No, it means you don't know Him well. Because the true biblical standard of measurement of whether we're maturing in the knowledge of God is when His perspective becomes our perspective. When His mission, our mission. When His purpose, our purpose. See, 
living for Jesus is not adding Jesus so that you can fulfill the plans and dreams of your life. One of the greatest benefits of the cross is discovered in 2 Corinthians 5.15. Listen to it. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for His sake who died and was raised. So our salvation, one of the benefits of salvation is slavery of living for self so that we might now freely, faithfully, in our greatest joy, live for Him and His purpose. It's our catalyst. I would submit to you the Apostle Paul is probably the greatest missionary this world has ever witnessed. Listen to the passion of his heart. His passion was not missions. Paul wasn't going, okay, what's my passion? I want to do missions. That's my passion. No. His passion was not missions. Here's his passion. I count all things but rubbish, loss, in comparison to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus. You hear what he's saying? Everything in my life is simply a loss in comparison in intimately knowing Him. That's Philippians 3.8. And then Paul says in Philippians 3.10, the prayer of his heart and life. Oh, that I might know Him. The power of His resurrection. I wish there was a period, but there's not. And the fellowship of His suffering, that I would be conformed to His death. The catalyst, the motivation of your engagement in Prescott to the ends of the earth flows through your passionate pursuit of knowing Him. And that passionate pursuit is accomplished in these three intimacies. In intimacy with the person of God, intimacy with the Word of God, intimacy in the community of faith. You remove yourself from one of those three intimacies, you derail your growth and knowledge of Jesus Christ or the Father through Jesus Christ. So that's our motivation, okay? But not only is it our motivation... It is in that intimate, passionate pursuit of knowing Him that we can discern how we should be involved in His ministry after we leave this building every single day of our lives because it is accomplished through the intimate relationship with the person of God, the Word of God, and the community of faith. And let me try to prove my point. If you have those Bibles, turn to John 17. And I'm going to start quoting around verse 17. So I'm picking up towards the tail end of a prayer. This prayer is culminating what we call the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse is on Thursday evening when His disciples come together in John 13, have this supper that we call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. He washes their feet showing him servant leadership. 
he then gets into 14, 15, and 16, and he starts reminding them all the things that he'd been teaching them, preparing them for his death and for his resurrection and what's going to happen after that. In 17, he now prays for them and for you and me. You're going, huh? We weren't allowed then. We weren't alive. Yes, he's praying for you and me. You'll hear it when I just quote this verse. Okay, you ready? Verse 17. Consecrate them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As you, because he's praying to the Father, sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. Now, if he's not just praying for the guys in the upper room, and he's praying for you, that means he's just commissioned you into the world, right? Yes? Okay. Verse 19. For their sake I consecrated myself that they would be sanctified in the truth. Now here is my point of he's praying for you. I not only pray for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their words. So now who is he praying for? Everybody in the room who has come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He literally almost 12,000 years, I mean 10,000 years, 2,000 years ago. I've lost time. It's altitude. I knew it. It's going to the mind. Us sea level folks, you know, we're trying to get accustomed up here. So almost 2,000 years ago, he was praying for you and me. And I would, I would argue he's still praying. Because Hebrews 7.25 says this, He, speaking of Jesus, lives to ever intercede on our behalf. Whoa! The picture of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father is a picture of intercession for us. Now, 21. This is where it gets really good. Listen. We're going to clause, clause, purpose clause in this next verse. That they, who's the they? Us. Okay, good. Oh, this is great. Talk to me. That they, us, would be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. In other words, he's praying that every local manifestation of the body of Christ, Heights Church being one of those, right? Okay. Should be an authentic manifestation of the unity of the Father and Son. Every time I think of that, I want to lay prostrate and say, Father, I am so sorry in all the ways I have hindered the unity of the church. Forgive me. That's what Jesus prayed. Why did He pray that? Let's move on to the next clause. That they would be in us. Now, who's the us again? Us. (laughs) You know, like Jeff is a little silly. That they, us, would be in who? Who? The Father and the Son, right? So now He's invited us into the intimacy of the Father and the Son. Now try to wrap your arms around that one. The only way you'll ever understand that is God. Pull away the veils from your eyes so that you can begin to comprehend that and that should be a foundation of your prayer. Help me understand what you're praying for me, Father, so I can begin to yield to that and learn from your Word of what that looks like. Now there's a purpose to those two prayers. That they would be one just as you follow in me and I in you. That they would be in us so the world may believe that you sent me. It deals with his mission. Do you see it? 
And then he goes on to say in verse, in verse 22, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, that they would be one just as we are one. I am in them. That's Jesus saying He is in us. I am in you or you in me. That they would be perfectly one. At this point, I'm doing, this is what I'm saying to Jesus. A little idealistic, but we'll move on. It's kind of like, you do understand we don't like each other most of the time. But that's what He's praying for us. Yes? How in the world do we do that? We have to embrace, embrace the first phrase of verse 22, which was, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them. What is that glory about that would lead us towards a unity in the church? It's the glory of the cross. It's understanding that the only way we'll experience the unity of the church is when we die to self in relationship to each other and yield to His redemptive rule and reign. That is the kingdom. That they would be perfectly one, right? Why? What does it say? That the world may know that you sent me and now here's the one that blows me away. And love them even as you love me. What has Jesus just prayed? He has just prayed that we would fully understand and embrace that Christ desires that the Father would love us as He loves Himself. His Son. God. Now, I need to quickly tie this in to my statement. How in the world do these verses relate to how we will know, how we'll figure out, how we'll ever imagine how we're going to reach our neighbors for Jesus, how we're going to share Christ within the context of our workplace, the marketplace, uh, where we live, the affinity groups we're a part of, the clubs we're a part of, the way we engage our world through relationship and things like that. How in the world are we going to know how we're going to faithfully be ministering in your name in, those, in that context? Normally we figure out, okay, we're going to do training. We've got to do five weeks on this and seven weeks on sharing your faith. Now, all the training is very good, but it is not how you figure it out. Because this is how Jesus sent you. Listen again. As you, Father, sent me, so I send them. Okay? That's Thursday night. Sunday night, three evenings later, right? Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Well, four evenings, if you're going to count Thursday. Four evenings later, listen to what Jesus says to His disciples. As the Father sent me, so I send you. So he's building on what he said Thursday, correct? This is a commissioning for all of us in the room. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves is, how did the Father send the Son? My natural tendency is, it was a task. John 3.17. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's how the Father sent the Son. So I'm about the same task. I no longer believe that. I believe this is what Jesus is praying for us, and I challenge you to discover to see if it's true. If you look at the panorama of John's Gospel, you see this portrait of Jesus. The Word becoming flesh, 
Remember that word was with God and was God, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Incarnation. The rest of the gospel is that word becoming flesh, whom we know as Jesus, not living like God, not acting like God, but yielding to the Father's will in everything he did. Everything. He doesn't do anything on his own initiative. He doesn't speak on his own initiative. He doesn't judge from his own perspective. It is all in the context of yielding to the Father. What does that mean for you and me? If that's how the Father sent the Son in intimate submission, that's how we are sent. Intimate submission to the Father and the Son, empowered by the Spirit, to accomplish His will. Folks, when we talk about mission in the church, missions in the church, and it's not just the things we label as that, it's the entire work of the church that is the mission of God. We have to understand it, that it can only be accomplished as He empowers us and as He directs us. And that happens through the pursuit of where your name, even the memory of your name, is the desire of our hearts. So here's my plea. I pray that sometime today or tomorrow or soon, you'll ask God to search where you are in this intimate knowledge of pursuing Him. Don't you figure it out because either you're going to be too just too, heavy, too hard on yourself or you're going to be too kind to yourself. I was too kind to myself. You'll, you'll gravitate to one of the extremes. It is the Spirit of God that searches out the reality of our hearts of where we are in relationship to God. Allow Him to do that. And then I challenge you to begin to pray or memorize some of these scriptures that we looked at and say, Father, I want the heart of Isaiah to be my heart, where your name, even the memory of your name is the desire of my heart. And I know I can't create that. I can make it look good in a worship service, but I know that's not really my passion, and I want that to be my passion. I want to be able to say with David, uh, you know, I earnestly seek thee. I, I yearn for thee. I want that to be the expression of my life, and I can't create that. But I know you can through as I pursue the intimacy of you, your word, and your community of faith. We don't do this as individuals. We do it together. And then as you pursue this, the opportunities that the church will share every year, the opportunities you'll discover through the movement of God within your life, will be your faithful movement in participating in His mission. So all the ends of the earth might serve Him. Father, I would pray You would take the feeble effort of Your servant. Take Your Word and drive it deep within the recesses of every heart in this room. For those that still don't know You, I pray that You will open their eyes to who You are because the God of this age has blinded the eyes to the unbelieving, to the light of the glory of Christ. I would pray that You would take the blindness from their eyes so that they might begin to see You 
and understand your pursuit of them to bring you into relationships so they can find their greatest joy in serving you instead of self. And for all the followers of Christ in this room, wherever they happen to be in the journey, many much further than I am, that they would understand this is not the individual effort of a collective group. This is the effort of a community of faith as this community of faith. I mean, we talk about what could be. We can't even imagine what could be if the passion of this body was for you. Your name, your renown, your glory from Prescott to the ends of the earth. Amen. Amen.